Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 13 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Margaret of Anjou, Chapter 1, Part 3. It is scarcely possible to imagine anything more frivolous than the series of articles which were exhibited against the luckless premier. In the first of these, he is charged with having intended to marry his son John to Margaret Beaufort, the heiress of the late John, Duke of Somerset, with the design of murdering and destroying the king, and then declaring her to be the heiress of the crown, for lack of heirs of the king's body. This most absurd accusation is in itself a refutation of all the scandalous imputations which modern historians have cast upon the friendship between the Duke of Suffolk and Queen Margaret, since her ruin must have been comprehended in the murder and destruction of the king. Margaret was at that period only nineteen, and though childless as yet, there was a possibility of her having many children, as she was considered one of the finest women in the world. It was, perhaps, this very article which first gave the aspiring family of Beaufort an eye to the succession to the throne, in the event of a failure of the royal Plantagenet line of Lancaster. The accusation was treated with infinite contempt by Suffolk, and his replies to the other articles, being such as to baffle his enemies, they, at the end of three weeks, exhibited eighteen fresh charges against him, but it is to be observed that neither in these, nor in the previous catalogue of misdemeanors, is there the slightest allusion to Queen Margaret, nor is her name mentioned in any record or contemporary chronicle in connection with Suffolk. Not even the satirical anonymous verses that were circulated on the arrest and imprisonment of that unpopular minister. Yet Rapin and other modern writers have not scrupled to assert that Queen Margaret, in her anxiety to preserve her favorite, caused the Parliament, on his arrest, to be prorogued to Leicester, where he attended King Henry and herself, and appeared publicly in his place as Prime Minister. Now the incontestable evidence of the records of Parliament prove that the Parliament was summoned to meet at Leicester, September 1449, five months before the arrest of Suffolk. But the peers and commons, taking warning by the events of the Parliament that sat at Bury St. Edmunds, refused to meet anywhere but at Westminster. Therefore the writs were reissued, commanding them to meet at Westminster November 6th. The same day they were prorogued to London, on account of the plague, adjourned from London again to Westminster December 4th, and on the 17th, adjourned till January 22nd, at Westminster, where Suffolk, as we have seen, in a fatal hour for himself, introduced the discussion of which the Commons took advantage to obtain his arrest. 
These records prove that Suffolk was never released from his imprisonment after he was once committed to the tower, till after his sentence of banishment for five years was pronounced, March 17th, by King Henry, who resorted to that temporizing expedient, in the vain hope of preserving him from the fury of his enemies. The Parliament then sitting at Westminster was prorogued March 30th, and ordered to meet at Leicester March 29th, the day before Suffolk embarked to fulfill his evil destiny. Two thousand persons had previously assembled at St. Giles Field to intercept him on his discharge from the tower, March 18th. They surprised his servants, but Suffolk succeeded in escaping to Ipwich, where, after arranging his affairs, he wrote that beautiful and pathetic letter to his son, which affords such touching evidence of his loyalty to his sovereign and his devotion to his beloved wife. He sailed from Ipwich, April 30th, with two small vessels, and sent a penance before him to inquire whether he might be permitted to land at Calais. But the penance was captured by a squadron of men of war, and immediately the Nicholas of the Tower bore down upon the Duke's vessels. He was ordered on board and received with the ominous salutation of, Welcome, traitor. He underwent a mock trial from the sailors, by whom he was condemned to suffer death. On the second morning after his capture, a small boat came alongside, in which were a block, a rusty sword, and an executioner. They lowered the duke into it, telling him he should die like a knight, and at the fifth stroke his head was struck off, and was left with the severed body on Dover Sands, where they were found by his chaplain, and received honorable internment in the collegiate church of Wingfield in Suffolk. The consummation of this tragedy, far from calming the feverish state of excitement to which the public mind had been stimulated, was only the first sign and token of the scenes of blood and horror that were in store for England. Pestilence had aggravated the woes of a starving and disaffected population, and the inflammatory representations of political incendiaries, acting upon the misery of the lower classes, caused the terrific outbreak of national frenzy which immediately after this event manifested itself in the rebellion under Jack Cade. It was to suppress this formidable insurrection that Henry VI prepared for his first essay in arms, by setting up his standard and going in person to attack Cade and his rabble rout, who were encamped on Blackheath in formidable array. At the news of the sovereign's approach at the head of 15,000 men, the hot valor of the captain of the great assembly of Kent and his followers received an immediate check and fled to Sever Oaks. Queen Margaret accompanied her lord on this expedition, but so little of the warlike spirit for which she was afterwards so fatally renowned did she manifest at this crisis, that when King Henry would have followed up his success by pursuing the insurgents to their retreat, her feminine terrors and anxiety for his safety prevailed upon him not to imperil his person by going any further. He therefore, in compliance with her entreaties, gave up the command of his army to Sir Humphrey Stafford and his brother William, and returned to London with her. Never did Margaret commit a greater error than by thus allowing her tenderness for her royal husband to betray him into conduct so unbecoming the son of the conqueror of France and Normandy. 
The rebels, attributing the weakness of the king to fear, took courage, rallied, and defeated the royalists, who, with their two generals, were cut to pieces. The victors then returned to Blackheath, and when the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Duke of Buckingham were dispatched from the court to treat with them, they found Cade dressed in a suit of gilded armor, the spoils of Sir Humphrey Stafford, encompassed by his victorious troops, and giving himself the airs of a sovereign. He positively refused to treat with anyone but the king himself, nor with him, unless he would come to Blackheath in person and grant all their demands. When this answer was returned to the king and queen, together with the news that the rebels were ready to march to London, they were thrown into such alarm that leaving the tower under the command of Lord Scales and the valiant Sir Matthew Go, they fled to Kenilworth Castle. We fear this cowardly proceeding must be attributed to the same fond weakness on the part of Queen Margaret, which influenced the retreat of the king from Blackheath, and it is to be observed that till she became a mother and the rights of her child were at stake, no trait of fierce or warlike propensities was ever manifested by her. On the 2nd of July, the rebels, who had previously taken up their quarters at Southwark, entered London, when Cade smote his staff on London stone, with these memorable words, Now is Mortimer Lord of London. The proceedings of this motley company of reformers and their Punchinello leader in London belong to general history, and it may suffice here to notice that the pacific influence of the two churchmen, the Archbishop of Canterbury and Waynefleet, Bishop of Winchester, succeeded in calming a storm, which had, in its brief but terrific progress, shaken the throne, deluged the capital of England with blood, and threatened to subvert law, social order, and sacred rights of property. The worthy prelates prevailed on the insurgents to lay down their arms, by affixing King Henry's seal to a general pardon, to which Cade was the only exception. An infringement of these conditions was most improperly attempted by Queen Margaret on her return to London with King Henry. The fact is evidenced in a private letter from John Payne, an esquire in the service of Sir John Falstaff, who, after pitifully detailing the manner in which he had been despoiled and maltreated by the rebels, and how he had been carried off by them sorely against his will, and exposed to the peril of the Battle of the Bridge, adds, and after that hurling was over, the Bishop of Rochester impeached me to Queen Margaret, and so I was arrested, and was in Marshall Sea, in right great duress and fear of my life. They would have had me impeach my master, Sir John Falstaff, of treason, and because I would not, had me up at Westminster, and there would have sent me to the jailhouse at Windsor. But two cousins of my wife's and mine, who were yeomen of the crown, went to King Henry and got grace for me. Margaret's desire to implicate Sir John Falstaff probably had reference to his previous conduct with regard to her countryman Champchevier, no less than to the suspicions she entertained of his loyalty. Subsequent events, however, proved that the queen had correct information as to Falstaff's practices against the government, for he became one of the most zealous partisans of the House of York. Margaret and Henry returned to the metropolis about the 10th of July, 1450, and the disclosures of some of Cade's accomplices in the late insurrection left no doubt 
on the mind of the queen that the duke of york had been the instigator of the revolt this conviction was confirmed by the return of that prince without permission from his government in ireland he was attended on his road to london by a retinue of four thousand men to the great terror of the court york having extorted from the king a promise to summon a parliament withdrew to his castle at fotheringay the return of the duke of somerset at this crisis inspired the timid sovereign with some degree of political courage and margaret soon transferred to this prince the partial confidence she had formerly reposed in his uncle cardinal beaufort their near relationship to the king by whom the ties of kindred were very powerfully felt and acknowledged sanctioned the queen in the close friendship which from first to last subsisted between her and the beaufort princes of the house of lancaster unfortunately however the unpopularity in which the disasters in france and normandy had involved somerset very soon extended to herself when it was perceived that he was shielded by court favor from the fury of the commons and the jealousy of the peers he was impeached by parliament and committed to the tower but immediately the short and stormy session was over he was released and promoted to the high office formerly enjoyed by suffolk he has been said to owe his elevation entirely to the influence of the queen but he appears to have been the especial favorite of his royal kinsman king henry the violent temper of somerset was the means of precipitating the direful collision of the rival factions whose strife for twenty years deluged england with kindred blood according to historical tradition those fatal badges of the contending houses of york and lancaster the pale and purple rose was assumed to distinguish the rival factions during the memorable dispute between somerset and the earl of warwick in the temple gardens when somerset to collect the suffrages of the bystanders plucked a red rose and warwick a white rose and each called upon every man present to declare his party by taking a rose of the color chosen by him whose cause he favored this was the prologue to that great national tragedy which ended in the extinction of the royal line and name of plantagenet that enlightened statesman historian philip de comines who was well acquainted with queen margaret attributes all the misfortunes that afterwards befell her and the overthrow of the house of lancaster to her rash interposition in the feud between somerset and warwick in which she indicated her preference for the former in a way that never was forgotten by warwick the queen had acted much more prudently says comines in endeavouring to have adjusted the dispute between them than to have said i am of this party and i will maintain it and so it proved by the event it is probable that the red rose was originally worn by margaret as a compliment to somerset in token that she espoused his cause and that his great political opponent the duke of york assumed the white as a symbol of hostility to him and his adherents rosettes of white and crimson riband or even a paper among the common soldiers were worn as the substitutes of these ill-omened flowers by the partisans of the royal claimants of the throne during the struggle between the houses of york and lancaster poetically called from these badges the war of the roses the duke of york having assumed a very formidable position in the state even that of an armed dictator to the sovereign margaret united with somerset in persuading henry 
that the time for concession and temporizing measures was past, and that his best policy now would be to crush the rebellion in its nest by marching to attack his foe. In pursuance of this advice, King Henry took the field in person February 16, 1452, and advanced towards the Welsh border. York, instead of standing his ground, took a circuitous route towards the metropolis, and encamped on Burnt Heath, in Kent. The king, a few hours afterwards, took up his post about four miles distant. The tenderness of Henry's heart, and his scruples at the idea of shedding his people's blood, led him to negotiate when he ought to have fought. York demanded that his old adversary, Somerset, should be placed under arrest, preparatory to an arraignment for his misdemeanors. Henry conceded this point by the advice of his prelates. York then disbanded his army, and came unattended to confer with his sovereign in his tent. Somerset, meantime, having represented to the queen the impolicy of sacrificing a faithful friend, to purchase a deceitful reconciliation with an audacious foe, obtained his liberation by her orders. By Margaret's contrivance, Somerset was concealed behind the arras of the royal pavilion, as a secret witness of the conference between his adversary and the king. York, who imagined the minister was safely bestowed in the tower, assured the king that he had been induced to take up arms on account of Somerset alone, in order that he might be brought to condign punishment. On this Somerset, unable to restrain his collar, rushed from his hiding place, and defied York, charging him to his face with designs on the crown. York fiercely retorted on Somerset, upbraiding him with his misgovernment in France, and the loss of Normandy, and finished by reproaching Henry with his violation of his royal word. Henry, who does not appear to have been aware of the proximity of his premier, remained speechless and amazed during this stormy scene, which was closed by the arrest of the Duke of York, as he quitted the tent. According to most historians, this was done by the order of the queen. Henry, however, would not permit him to be harmed, and he was released, on condition of swearing a solemn oath of fealty to the king in St. Paul's Cathedral, March 10th after which he was permitted to retire to his castle of Wigmore, where his son, the Earl of March, afterwards King Edward IV, was raising an army for his rescue. Queen Margaret, having gained her point in retaining Somerset at the head of the government, was in consequence subjected to aspersions from the other party, derogatory to her reputation. Somerset was, like his predecessor Suffolk, a man in the decline of life, the father of sons older than the queen, and so devotedly attached to his own wife, that he had sacrificed his honor to his tenderness for her person, during his disastrous regency in France. But what is there of falsehood, that the demon of the party will not invent, to vilify its victims, or of improbability, that the vulgar will not believe and circulate, especially if in the shape of scandal on royalty? During the deceitful calm that for a brief interval succeeded the late tempest, Margaret turned her attention to foreign affairs, and through her influence, the renowned Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, was dispatched, with such forces as could be raised, to the assistance of the English party at Guienne. 
the aged hero achieved some brilliant successes in the first instance but it was impossible for the queen struggling as she was with the mighty faction that opposed her in parliament to support a war against the overwhelming force of france talbot was borne down by numbers and slain in his eightieth year his brave adherents were cut to pieces in the valiant talbot margaret lost one of her most devoted friends one of the few out of the many warrior peers of england at that rude era who possessed a mind sufficiently cultivated to appreciate the learning and accomplishments of the fair provencal queen the magnificent illuminated manuscript which he presented to her is a surviving monument of his exquisite taste in the fine arts while his dedicatory lines addressed to his royal patroness contain a delicate testimony of his opinion of her talents and acquirements he requests her to explain to his sovereign anything that may appear difficult to understand in the book for he says though you speak english so well you have not forgotten your french the illuminated title page represents the queen seated by henry the sixth and surrounded by their court receiving the volume from the hands of talbot the state hall in which they were assembled is worthy of attention the royal seat fills up a rich oriel with vaulted ceiling groined and painted blue with gold stars the clustered windows are long and lancet shaped but the tops of the lancets are rounded probably the scene took place in some hall of the destroyed apartments in the tower or westminster palace an arras of gold and colors representing the royal arms and numerous checkers is stretched from pillar to pillar and forms the background of the royal seat which is a broad low divan covered with cloth on this margaret robed in queenly costume sits with her right hand locked in that of king henry's who sits by her in regal array margaret wears a royal crown her hair of a pale golden color is most gracefully flowing down from under her diadem and falls in profusion down her back and shoulders and over her regal mantle which is pale purple fastened round the bust with bands of golden gems the dress beneath the mantle is the furred coat hardy precisely the same as before alluded to she is exquisitely lovely and very majestic in this carefully finished portrait which does not represent her older than in her twentieth year talbot is kneeling before her presenting the very folio from which this description is taken his dog is in attendance the title page of the magnificent volume is redolent of margaret's emblem flower daisies are seen growing in the garden of the palace daisies with their little red buttons are arranged in profusion up the side of the title page daisies swarm in clusters round her armorial bearings and flourish in every corner of the illuminated pages of the volume amongst other embellishments may likewise be noted a crowned m the queen's initial surrounded by the garter and its motto the queen's ladies are seen behind the royal seat attired in heart-shaped caps which were a graceful modification at margaret's court of the monstrous horn cap of the preceding half century they were formed of a stuffed roll wreathed with gold and gems and fixed in a fanciful turban shape over a close call of gold cloth or network brought to a point low in front and rising behind the head henry's nobles are assembled in crowds to the right of the royal seat they are clothed in full surtouts like the beefeaters dresses but of whole colors and trimmed with fur 
they either wear round black caps or their hair is cropped close to the head a fashion always prevalent in the time of war when the helmet prevented the growth of hair the artists employed by the earl of shrewsbury in the splendid illuminations of this volume have complimented margaret by portraying the queen of olympus with her features and arrayed in her royal robes the kirtle of the macedonian queen is also powdered with margaret's emblem flower the daisy at the end of the volume is an allegorical piece representing queen margaret and the principal ladies of her court as the virtues margaret wearing her diadem and purple robe is characterized as faith king henry as honor the death of the chivalric veteran by whom margaret had been held in such especial honor and who was regarded by england as the greatest captain of the age was a severe blow to the court and a national calamity which was mourned by all classes of the people it was at this gloomy period when the ill success that attended the arms of england abroad increased the clamors of the enemies of the government at home that queen margaret for the first time afforded a prospect of bringing an heir to the throne about six months before the birth of her child margaret had to mourn over the death of her beloved mother the high-minded and heroic isabella of lorraine who died february twenty eighth fourteen fifty three aged only forty three margaret's morning weeds were blue probably of that deep dark melancholy tint which has recently been called french black the loss of a mother of such a mother too as isabella of lorraine could not have been otherwise than keenly felt by margaret who had in childhood and early youth shared and solaced so many of her trying adversities but a heavier calamity than even the death of that dearly beloved parent oppressed the royal matron as the dread hour of peril and anguish drew near from which the consorts of monarchs are no more exempted than the wives of peasants when margaret was in the eighth month of her pregnancy and the political horizon became daily more gloomy in anticipation of an event more feared than wished by all parties king henry was seized with one of those alarming attacks of malady to which his grandfather charles the sixth of france was subject the agitating character of public events and the difficulties with which the court had had to contend for the last four years had been too much for a prince of acute sensibility and who had moreover hereditary tendency to inflammation of the brain for a time both mind and body sank under the accumulated pressure and he remained in a state that left little hope for his life and none for his reason margaret had doubtless been long aware of the dark shadow that impended over her royal lord and felt the strong necessity of thinking and acting for him at seasons when his judgment could not be trusted to form decisions for himself on any matter of importance she has been blamed for encouraging him to spend his time in pursuits fitter for the cloister than the throne but considering the circumstances of his case she acted with equal tenderness and prudence in directing his attention to tranquil and sedative amusements instead of perplexing him with the turmoils and strong excitement of politics king henry was at clarendon when he was first seized with his dangerous malady but after a few days he was by slow degrees conveyed to his palace at westminster where queen margaret on the thirteenth of october fourteen fifty three gave birth to a prince the unfortunate edward of lancaster whom speed pathetically calls the child of sorrow and infelicity. 
Henry remained vibrating between life and death, and perfectly unconscious of an event, the anticipation of which had, a few months earlier, been hailed by him with transports of joy. The parliamentary rolls bear witness to the munificent reward he bestowed on Richard Tunstall, his squire of the body, whose office it was, by a strange etiquette of the Middle Ages, to announce publicly to the king, for the information of the court, the hopeful situation of the queen. Forty marks per annum were granted from the Duchy of Lancaster, by King Henry, in these words. Because Richard Tunstall, Esquire, made unto us the first comfortable relation and notice that our most dearly beloved wife, the queen, was incent, to our most singular consolation, and to all true liege people's great joy and comfort. A writ of summons, under the privy seal, was issued to the ladies of the highest rank in England, to attend Queen Margaret at the ceremony of her purification, which took place at the Palace of Westminster on the 18th of November, in the 32nd of the reign of Henry the Sixth, The ladies summoned were the duchesses of Bedford, York, Norfolk the Elder, Norfolk the Younger, Buckingham, Somerset the Elder, Somerset the Younger, Exeter the Elder, Exeter the Younger, and Suffolk, with eight countesses, among whom may be noted the Countess of Warwick, besides a vice-countess and seventeen baronesses. There is also an entry in the Pell Rolls, of the sum of five hundred and fifty-four pounds, sixteen shillings, eight pence, paid to Margaret the Queen, for a richly embroidered christening mantle, used at the baptism of the prince, also for twenty yards of russet cloth of gold, to array the font, and five hundred and forty brown sable backs, for trimming her own churching robe. As the royal infant was born on St. Edward's Day, Queen Margaret, in the hope of propitiating the people, bestowed that name, so dear to England, on her son. This fair boy, as he is called in Chronicle, was baptized by Wayne Fleet, Bishop of Winchester. Cardinal Kemp, Archbishop of Canterbury, the Duke of Somerset, and the Duchess of Buckingham, were his sponsors. The birth of an heir, to the long childless Lancastrian sovereign, to whom the Duke of York had hitherto stood presumptively in that position, was regarded by the majority of the nation as the herald of a bloody succession war, while the partisans of York failed not to throw all the suspicion they could on the legitimacy of the royal infant, by insinuations prejudicial to the honor of the queen. It was also pretended by some that it was a spurious child, and by others that the son of the king and queen died soon after his birth, and another had been substituted in his place. Queen Margaret, who had not completed her twenty-fourth year, and the king was just thirty-three, when they became the parents of this, their only son, whose birth, so far from being the slightest political advantage to them, had the worst possible influence on their fortunes, by determining the Duke of York to contest the crown of England with Henry at sword's points, instead of waiting for its natural reversion to him at the death of his royal kinsman. Queen Margaret at this period exercised the royal power in the name of the king, assisted by the Duke of Somerset and Cardinal Kemp, Archbishop of Canterbury and Chancellor of England. This prelate who had been in King Henry's cabinet before his marriage with Margaret of Anjou, and enjoyed his royal master's confidence, died in the December following the birth of the prince, and the House of Lords took advantage of his death to depute a committee from their body to ascertain the real state of the king, 
for the purpose of learning his pleasure, touching the appointments left vacant by the death of the cardinal. The commissioners proceeded to Windsor, whither the king had been removed by Queen Margaret and his physicians for change of air. They were admitted into his chamber and declared their errand. But the king made no reply and appeared to have lost all consciousness of the things of this world. His reason must at that time have been under a total eclipse. On the 25th of March, 1454, the committee reported to the Parliament that they had been to wait upon the king at Windsor, and, after three interviews with him, and earnest solicitation, they could by no means obtain an answer, or token of answer, from him. When the situation of the king was made known to his peers of Parliament, they, on the 27th of March, appointed the Duke of York protector and defender of the king during the king's pleasure, or till such time as Edward the Prince should come to age of discretion. The Parliament thus evidently acted under the impression that the king's indisposition was a mental aberration that would last as long as he lived, and at the same time they showed a desire of preserving the rights of the reigning family by reserving this office for an infant not six months old. Patents bearing the name of the king's letters patent were read in the Parliament on the 3rd of April, granting to the infant prince the same allowance that was made for his royal father in the first year of his reign, with the yearly fee of 2,000 marks only, besides allowances for learning to ride and other manly exercises, provided the same grant be in no ways prejudicial to any grant made to Margaret, Queen of England. King Henry, though incapable at this time of business, is made by similar instruments to create his son Edward, Prince of Wales and Earl of Chester. This was confirmed by the hands of all the lords, and by the commons in Parliament. By the same authority, Queen Margaret received the grant of £1,000 per annum for life, out of the customs and subsidies on wools at the port of Southampton, besides sundry manors and hereditaments in the counties of Northampton, Southampton, and Oxfordshire, which were conferred to her by this Parliament. These concessions to the queen and her infant boy were probably granted to induce her to acquiesce in the appointment of the Duke of York to the office of protector. A medical commission of five physicians and surgeons was appointed by the Duke of York and his council to attend on the person of the king and to watch over his health. Margaret, meantime, engrossed between the first sweet cares of a mother and the melancholy of watching over the fluctuations of her royal husband's afflicting malady, remained personally passive amidst these great political changes. Her party, however, were in a state of activity, and claimed for her no less rights than those allowed to the queen consorts of France, during the minority of an heir. Indeed, in the five clauses laid in the queen's name before the Privy Council, she, in ignorance of the English constitution, insisted on little less than absolute power as queen regent during the incapacity of her husband and the minority of her son. This requisition was rejected. Soon after, and doubtless connected with this movement, the arrest of the Duke of Somerset took place by the order of the protector York in the queen's presence chamber. Margaret resented this insult greatly, but was unable to do anything openly, for the protection of her friends. York proceeded to depose Somerset from his office of Captain of Calais, and by letters patent, issued in the king's name, bestowed it on himself. 
Henry the Sixth began to amend in November. By the ensuing Christmas, he was so much recovered that on St. John's Day, he sent his almoner to Canterbury with his offering, and his secretary made his oblation at the shrine of St. Edward. From the testimony of a contemporary witness, who describes the state of the king at this period, Henry appears to have been like a person just awakened from a long dream, when reason and convalescence returned. The touching particulars of the infant prince's recognition by his royal father are thus quaintly narrated, in the letter to which we have just alluded. On Monday at noon the queen came to him, and brought my lord the prince with her, and then asked him what the prince's name was, and the queen told him, Edward and then he held up his hands, and thanked God thereof. And he said that he never knew him till that time, nor wist what was said to him, nor wist where he had been, whilst he had been sick, till now. And he asked who were the godfathers. And the queen told him, and he was well appaid, content. And she told him the cardinal was dead, and he said he never knew of it till this time. Then he said one of the wisest lords in this land was dead and my lord of winchester bishop and my lord of st john of jerusalem were with him the morrow after twelfth day and he did speak to them as well as ever he did and when they came out they wept for joy and he saith he is in charity with all the world and so he would all the lords were and now he saith matins of our lady and evensong and heareth his mass devoutly margaret immediately took prompt measures for Henry's restoration to the sovereign authority, by causing him to be conveyed, though still very weak, to the House of Lords, where he dissolved the Parliament, and the Duke of Somerset was immediately released, and reinstated in his former post. The triumph of the Queen and her party was short-lived. The Duke of York retired to the marches of Wales, raised an army, with the assistance of his powerful friends and kinsmen, Salisbury and Warwick, and marched towards London, with the intention of surprising the king there. All the troops that could be mustered by the exertions of the queen and Somerset scarcely amounted to two thousand men. On the twenty-first day of May, the royal army lay at Watford, and the next day the king took up his headquarters at St. Albans. The royal standard was erected in St. Peter's Street. The Duke of York and his men lay at Hayfield. King Henry was not deficient in personal courage, but his holy nature revolted from being the cause of bloodshed, and he sent a message to the Duke of York to ask, Wherefore he came in hostile array against him? York replied, That he would not lay down his arms, unless the Duke of Somerset were dismissed from King Henry's councils, and delivered up to justice. Henry for once in his life manifested something of the fiery temperament of a Plantagenet, when this answer was reported to him by the agents of the Duke of York, for with a loud imprecation, the only one he was ever known to utter, he declared, that he would deliver up his crown, as soon as he would the Duke of Somerset, or the least soldier in his army, that he would treat as a traitor every man who would presume to fight against him in the field. The Earl of Warwick, who commanded York's vanguard, commenced the attack, by breaking down the garden wall, which stood between the quay and the checker in Hollowell Street, and led his men on through the gardens, shouting, A Warwick! A Warwick! The battle lasted but an hour. The king's army, made up almost all of gentlemen, was inferior in numbers, and pent up in the town. 
they fought desperately, and a dreadful slaughter ensued, in the narrow streets. The king, who stood under his own standard, was wounded in the neck with an arrow, at the commencement of the fight. He remained till he was left solace under his royal banner, when he walked very coolly into a baker's shop close by, where York immediately visited him, and bending his knee, bade him, Rejoice, for the traitor Somerset was slain. Henry replied, For God's sake, stop the slaughter of my subjects. York then took the wounded king by the hand, and led him first to the shrine of St. Albans, and then to his apartments in the abbey. When the slaughter, according to his entreaty, was stopped, Henry consented to accompany the victor to London on the following day, May 24th. End of section 13. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.